On this week's Adam Schefter podcast, we are joined by the great author, a friend, a mentor, Mitch Album, who just got the news that his newest book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, is number one atop the New York Times bestseller list. So the number one best-selling author, Mitch Album, will join us as will the Pittsburgh Steelers running back James Conner, who has stepped in and replaced Le'Veon Bell, who's still a no-show in Pittsburgh. But with all the trade news going on around the NFL, with the NFL trade deadline coming up Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, first we have Evan Kaplan, the ESPN NFL researcher, to break down some of these moves and provide a preview of Week 8. Cap hit. Evan, we've had an incredibly busy week as we get ready for week eight in the NFL season. And there were trades galore this week already. We saw the Oakland Raiders deal Amari Cooper to the Dallas Cowboys for a first-round pick. We saw the New York Giants trade their former first-round pick, Eli Apple, to the New Orleans Saints for a fourth-round pick and a seventh-round pick. What do you make of some of these moves? Well, let's start with Cooper, Adam, who was the deal that came down on Monday. And you look at his production over the last few seasons, and it's certainly down. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But look overall at his career, and there's a reason why the Cowboys made this trade based on the production they've gotten from the wide receiver position. Amari Cooper has 13 games in his career with 100 receiving yards. That's since 2015. The Cowboys, as a team, only have 11 instances of a player with 100 receiving yards in a game. So you have to look at the entire sample size. They still think they can get something out of Cooper. He's very young. He's only 24 years old. So certainly the the trade makes sense there from an on-field standpoint. Uh, and, and you look at the Giants and, look, since this new regime has come on hand, they have continued to get rid of some of the Giants' former first-round picks. 2010, Jason Pierre-Paul traded to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 2013, Justin Pugh, they chose not to re-sign him. And now in the last few weeks, they have cut Eric Flowers, 2015, and now traded Eli Apple, 2016. There is one Giants first-round pick still on the roster that was picked from 2016 or earlier. That's Odell Beckham Jr. Yeah. So it, it, there's a there's an exodus going on with those first-round picks yeah, in New York. You know, Evan, it's interesting. A couple of thoughts here. Number one, it shows you why it's so hard to move on and – set up a new regime because new regimes get rid of old players. And at one point, these players were pretty good. And the Giants are moving off them, and they haven't worked out in New York. And maybe they were bad picks, but maybe Eli Apple will go to New Orleans and thrive. And maybe Amari Cooper will go to Dallas and thrive. That's what those teams think at this point in time. And the other thing that's interesting to me about this is we are taping this Tuesday afternoon, 4.30ish Eastern. The trade deadline is literally one week away. One week away, and we've already seen Carlos Hyde dealt from Cleveland to Jacksonville. We've seen Amari Cooper dealt from Oakland to Dallas. We've seen Eli Apple dealt from New York to New Orleans. Three notable trades in the span of four or five days with a week to go. These front offices, these general managers are more aggressive than ever before, and they are making moves and itching to make more moves. We've seen three, and if we go back to last year at the trade deadline, and I may be missing something, Kelvin Benjamin went from Carolina to Buffalo. Jimmy Garoppolo went from New England to San Francisco. Jay Ajay from Miami to Philadelphia. Marcel Darius from Buffalo to Jacksonville. And Dwayne Brown from Houston to Seattle. That was five last year at the deadline. Already three this year. And it's becoming, the NFL is becoming more like the NBA and Major League Baseball in terms of trades. What used to be not very common in terms of transactions is now, like you said, becoming so much more common and and we've still got a few days to go before that deadline. We bring up Eli Apple and the Saints. Can they recover from the heartbreaking playoff loss from last year, Evan? So what I want to do is try and try to make this a little scientific in terms of their heartbreaking loss, Minnesota Miracle, the Stefan Diggs touchdown. So I looked at all of the teams that have lost a playoff game since 1990 under the current playoff format, despite having a lead in the final 30 seconds of that game. Now, there's 13 teams that have done it, including the Saints last year. Of the previous 12, only two won a playoff game in the following season. The two teams that did win in that situation were the 2002 Raiders, who got all the way to the Super Bowl and lost, and the 2013 Seahawks, who actually won the Super Bowl. So if you're able to get that first win, odds are you're going to have a pretty deep playoff run. So Saints obviously off to a good start this year, but the recent history has shown us it is tough to recover. Some of those teams that have lost those games, 
the more memorable playoff games of the last few decades. Music City Miracle, mm-hmm. the T.O. Catch game, Tuck Rule game. So games that come to the front of your mind. Um, so tough to come back, but certainly Saints in, in Week 7 beat the Ravens, so they're they're on the right track to to buck that trend. And I imagine they'll be using Eli Apple to help try to shut down Stephon Diggs, Adam Thielen, Laquan Treadwell, all the Vikings wide receivers making plays. They'll need Eli Apple this Sunday in that game. All right, we talked about the Cowboys making a trade. We talked about the Giants making a trade. And in the NFC East, the Eagles are a little bit on the ropes here, the defending world champion. So are the team that they're playing, the Jacksonville Jaguars. We have an early kickoff again in London this Sunday, 9.30 a.m. Eastern. Set your alarm clocks right now. What's going to happen to the loser of the Eagles-Jacksonville game? Panic from the fan base. I think we can say that. Oh, yeah. But don't panic just yet. So 3-5, and certainly not the start that either of these teams would have wanted after the success they had last season. But you look since 2011, seven teams have made the playoffs after going three and five in their first eight games. That's more than in the previous 20 seasons combined. So lately, the, the, the tough start over the first half of the season doesn't mean that your season is over. The last time that happened was in 2015 when three teams were three and five through half their season. They still recovered to make the playoffs. The Chiefs, Texans, and Redskins all did it that season. Yeah, one of the great matchups this weekend, Evan. We've got Aaron Rodgers going to L.A. What a sports Saturday or Sunday it's going to be in L.A. where you have the Rams playing the Packers early on and then the Red Sox playing the Dodgers later on in the World Series. But Aaron Rodgers in L.A., for all the stars that we have out in L.A., Aaron Rodgers may be the biggest one of them on Sunday. How has he fared versus the Rams during the course of his career? 4-0 against the Rams, Adam, wow. but but this is a little different Rams team. So the, the previous QBs he's faced in those four games, Sam Bradford twice, Nick Foles, Mark Bolger. So those four wins, his most against any team without a loss in his career. But now he faces Jared Goff, uh, two QBs from Cal, kind of similar numbers within to this point in, in Goff's career as to where Rodgers was. And, and obviously a good omen for Jared Goff here. Aaron Rodgers won a Super Bowl, his only Super Bowl, in his third season as a starter in 2010. This is Jared Goff's third season as a starter. Rams, only undefeated team left in the NFL. And this is something to keep an eye on. Uh, certainly, I'm sure all these all Packers fans have this on their radio already, but you look at their schedule coming up. It is brutal. Rams, Week 8, Patriots, Dolphins, Seahawks, Vikings. Four of those games are on the road. So a, a tough upcoming schedule in a competitive NFC North, certainly. How about that? And the last game that I want to bring up with you, Evan, is... The Browns in Pittsburgh. Now, this is a new regime in Cleveland, and they've already played four overtime games this year. The record is five that the 1983 Green Bay Packers sent, but it feels like the Browns are going to overtime every single week, breaking the hearts of their fans some Mm. weeks, coming through in others, but at least being competitive. Give me an idea of the last time the Browns have fared well in Pittsburgh. So Heinz Field has certainly been a house of horrors for Cleveland Browns fans. They have lost 14 straight games in Pittsburgh. The last time they won was in the 2003 season. Just to give you some perspective on that, in 2003, Baker Mayfield was eight years old, Miles Garrett was seven years old, and Hugh Jackson was in his first year as an NFL offensive coordinator <laughs> with the Redskins. So it's been a while for the Browns. So keep in mind, second meeting this year between these teams, week one, they tied in Cleveland. Baker Mayfield did not see the field in that game, so this will be his first career game against the rival Steelers. Yeah, that should be a great game. And again, I think the pressure is rising in Cleveland. I think you're starting to hear more and more talk about Hugh Jackson getting more involved in the offense. He's taking that back. But you got two very strong personalities in Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley, the Browns offensive coordinator. We'll see how that Absolutely. plays out. But first things first, a big game in Pittsburgh. Evan, want to thank you very much for your weekly NFL preview. Enjoy week eight. Thanks a lot, Adam. Speaking of that Steelers-Browns matchup, Le'Veon Bell at the time of this taping still has not shown up at the Steelers training facility. Another week without Le'Veon Bell. The beat goes on. A lot of people feel he'll be back next week after the trade deadline so that he can report at 401, sign his franchise tender, and the Steelers won't be able to trade him. And some people believe that's why he's holding out. But in the interim, with Bell holding out, we have his replacement, James Conner, joining us to talk about everything that he's been through and his place with the Steelers right now. Hello there, James. How you doing? I got a question for you. When you're growing up and going to Erie McDowell High School and then going to the University of Pittsburgh and you're training in the same facility where the Steelers train today and you're envisioning your career in the NFL one day, 
How, yeah. do, how does what you envision then compare to the reality that you've lived in the last couple of seasons? Uh, man, that's a good question, tough question. You know, uh, growing up up in Erie and then, uh, you know, just trying to get a scholarship. And then it came, obviously, uh, Pitt was the was my best option that I had. I only had a couple options. And uh, so when I came here, and like you said, sharing the same facility, um, we had four practice fields in our back, and, you know, the, the, the Panthers had the last two and the Steelers got the first two. So, I, you know, I just would sit down at the practice and watch those guys, watch Ben, A.B., all those guys just work. And, um, you know, just envisioning myself on an NFL team, not knowing it would, it would have been the Steelers. It was going to be the Steelers. And so uh, for now for me to, you know, stay here in the same city, uh, it's just surreal, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's like living a dream. And how is it compared to what you imagined then? Uh, it's everything kind of I expected. Um, you know, it's, well, for now I can say that because year two, you know, my first year, you know, it was a little different getting adjusted to things, you know, watching a lot and stuff. But, uh, you know, now that I'm playing and stuff, uh, you know, it's kind of what I expected. Did you have any interaction with the Steelers back when you were playing for the university? Yeah, come, uh, some of those guys would say, like, you know, good game because, you know, we play Saturdays and stuff. So when I will come in, they would be like, uh, way to run 2-4, uh, number 24. So, you know, some of those guys would tell me good game and, uh, you know, I would just see them. But not really, like, you know, it's, even though it's so close, it's like far, far away. It's only a wall that, that divides us. But, uh, you know, the contact in between the two things is really not much at all. Yeah. And, James, in your rookie year, you ran for 144 yards. Yeah. So you're coming into your sophomore year, and I don't know that anybody expects what we've seen so far. So far, after the bye week, 453 rushing yards, seven rushing TDs. What did you expect for yourself coming into this season? Well, coming into the season, I knew that there was a possible situation of, you know, Le'Veon holding out and stuff. So uh, I really was just controlling everything I could control, and I was just being in the best shape uh, physically as possible. So I took a lot of, you know, pride into being in shape and, and, and being ready and, uh, you know, with the playbook, learning all that. I uh, took advantage of the reps during training camp and, uh, you know, I always knew what I was capable of doing. Uh, yeah, like you said, only 144 yards as, as a rookie, you know, but only had the ball like 30 times. So um, I knew that, if you know, with opportunity I could produce. But uh, in the off season, I was just really, uh, you know, focusing on myself and just being ready for the situation that I'm in right now. James, was there any kind of light that went on between what you learned from year one compared to what you learned and have experienced here in year two that has made a difference for you? Yeah, just uh, accountability, just being accountable and, uh, you know, just knowing how to fit in into the offense and uh, just being available. Uh, I was hurt. You know, I had some hamstrings, uh, you know, early on and then, uh, you know, tore, tore a knee. And uh, you can't really help that. You know, football is going to be football. But, um, you know, just doing a good job of staying healthy and uh, treatment after before games, just being able to stay on the field, staying healthy. I want to go back to November of 2015. Uh, when your mm-hmm. doctors told you that they saw a large mass in your upper torso and you made your Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosis public in early December 2015. What yeah. was it like when doctors gave you that news? What do you remember about that? I uh, really just shocked and confused. Um, I remember I, I got the phone call and after one, my, one of my scans and uh, they said it was it looks like Hodgkin's lymphoma and I wasn't familiar with that I didn't know what lymphoma was and I said I said what's lymphoma and the doctor said it's a form of cancer and when he said that I was I mean it wasn't 100% at that time but I figured that if they were going to be calling me you know and it was right like right by Thanksgiving I knew it was probably serious so uh just shocked really just kind and confused because I didn't know much about the cancer and everything like that so really just shocked and confused and what was that process like as you were undergoing treatment? Did you ever have any doubts that you wouldn't be able to make it back to play football again, James? Um, no, I always try to stay positive. Any negative thought that, that crept in, I'll try to block it out immediately. Um, it was just that process was, was just tough because, you know, the year before, you know, I was up there with the top guys in the, in the country and uh, just seeing them and not being able to be on the field and compete. That was really the toughest part of it all. Um, obviously, the chemotherapy isn't fun. You know, it takes a toll on your body. It beats you up pretty bad. But uh, my main thing was just not being out there uh, with my teammates and being able to compete. I was a team captain at the time there. So, uh, yeah, it was, just, it was just a tough, long process. What compelled you to reach out to the other patients at Pittsburgh's Hillman Cancer Center when you did? Yeah. Uh, well, just because, you know, I was a part of something that was bigger than me, uh, I w- Every at every treatment, I'd have family around, and or, or some teammates would come, and and then I would see other people, whether it be young kids or, or elderly adults, that you know said they've been coming here. Their their cancer is a long-lasting cancer. This is they've been there for eight years, or they've been battling for eight for ten years, and right. they'd be by themselves. Is 
reading a newspaper or just, you know, looking lonely. So I'm thinking, you know, I have like a camera crew around me just because, you know, my, my status and teammates and all the support group uh, while I was getting chemo, but they'd be by themselves. So I was kind of like, man, I, I didn't want nobody to feel no ways or, or, you know, we're all going through the same thing, just trying to show them that, that we're just alike. How often now do you have the chance to reach out to patients at the Hillman Cancer Center? Well, uh, when I go back for checkups, it's like it's like a party when I see every everybody. But um, you know, nowadays it's really through social media, especially with being in season. You know, I'm pretty busy. Yep. But um, off season, definitely we'll be making you know children's hospital visits and everything like that. Um, but I, you know, I, I try to reach out when I can. You know, whether it be through social media messages or or um, when I have time to go. Now, in May of 2016, you declared that you were cancer free, and you began mm-hmm. working out shortly thereafter. How? Has your life changed since you've been declared cancer-free, and how has it affected your perspective? Uh, man, I'm just forever grateful that I have the opportunity to be back playing the game again. Uh, life has changed uh, just because, you know, I, I'm part of something way bigger than football now. You know, uh, you know, it's the, the, the cancer community is like a, a brotherhood. It allows me to, you know, connect with people any color, any race, any gender, uh, firsthand, because I know exactly what they went through now. So now it's like uh, people who aren't even fans of football or know anything about football, they know me uh, as the survivor, you know. So um, really just like the audience and people that I've re- that, that I can connect with is way bigger than just the football audience. And so I'll, you know, always have that survivor, cancer survivor attached to my name. And what's your message to all the people out there who are looking to you for inspiration, James? Uh, that there's life after, and there's life after, you know, tragedy and adversity. Um, you can't escape adversity. That's my number one message. Well, and also is keep the faith, you know, through through God. But um, you know that that wasn't my first tragedy in life, and it won't be my last one. Uh, you know, I hope it's not as worse as that. But basically, you know, there's gonna be tough times in life. But uh, I like to just be able to, you know, give others hope that um, when their situation, you know, it'll, it'll come and go, and, and it'll be life after that. So this season has been going great for you so far. What is there left for you to do this season, James? Oh man, there's there's a lot left. Um, you know, it looks decent on paper, but you know, there's when I watch the film, that's the thing uh, that I'm learning every week is that you learn something new about yourself, and there's always mistakes after every game. So, oh man, there's there's a lot, a lot of football left, and there's a lot more I can do. Um, you know, just with just with the ball in hands and the ball uh, without without the ball, so. Yeah, we have a lot of football left, so, man, every week is is a new week, and I have a lot to prove still. What have you learned from the Le'Veon Bell situation yourself right now? You know, I really haven't been focusing much on it, to be honest. Um, I know that there's definitely uh, business sides of it. Um, you know, it's uh, I know Le'Veon loves the game of football, and I know he wants to be here playing. But um, that's kind of the part that I don't know is what's going on, like, kind of behind the scenes. Um I know he loves the game. He loves to compete. He's a hell of a player, and so I know if he, he'd be here, you know, if you if you know things worked out. So really, I don't, I don't, I'm not I'm, I'm not really paying much attention to it. I'm just waiting to see him when he when he gets back, and uh, I know when he does get back, it's going to be a tough time for defenses because you know me and him we both bring a lot to the table. That would be quite a combination to have you and him in the backfield there. Yeah, it'd be something. Yeah. Well, keep doing what you do, James. Got a lot of people pulling for you. You've done a great job, and we wish you continued success the rest of the way. All right. right. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, James. We'll be back in a moment with Mitch Album. But first, I want to tell you about Dollar Shave Club. No matter what you do in the bathroom to get ready, Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. They have amazing shower stuff, hairstyling products, toothbrushes and toothpaste, and, of course, razors and shave supplies. I enjoy using the Amber and Lavender Body Wash which leaves my skin feeling hydrated and clean. That's how I get ready, but you're not me. You have your own way to get ready. You might shave your whole body to get ready for a bike race. Dollar Shave Club's Executive Razor and Shave Butter can help. You might do your hair to get ready for your soccer match. Boogies by DSC can help you get your style right. The thing is, no matter what you do to get ready, DSC has everything you need. And right now, you can get ready with an amazing deal on any one of their starter sets. I recommend the Daily Essential Starter Set because I love the Amber Lavender Body Cleanser, but you can't go wrong with any of them. Head over to dollarshaveclub.com slash AS to pick your own DSC Starter Set for just $5. After your starter set, products ship at regular price. And make sure you check out their new video too. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash AS. dollarshaveclub.com slash AS. Hello, Mitch. Hey, Adam. How you doing? How is everything going, all right? 
Everything is going pretty good. You had Tuesdays with Maury at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for four years. And yeah. the book that you wrote prior to this, this is the sequel to 15 years ago, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. That was a New York Times bestseller. And now your new book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, debuts at number one. Do you still get the same jolt of adrenaline when you get that news? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't get old. And, uh, you know, it's 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 humbling and it's harder to continue to do that kind of stuff as you go on. But, um, yeah, it doesn't get old. I, I think an athlete would tell you, you know, the same thing if they uh, had something that was, you know, won a game or or was good for their career. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's more, I'm more pleased when it's, people are still reading it a while later, you know, because uh, my books people tend to read and then pass on to somebody else and continue, and that that's the thing I enjoy the most about it. What does it mean to you to be atop that list that so many people love your books so much, Mitch? Oh, I, <laughs> it, it just means that, you know, the things that I think are important uh, to get across, apparently some other people think, too um you know that's nice uh i don't write a typical book you know i'm i'm i probably suffered a little bit from being hard to define you know i'm not a thriller writer i'm not a uh, horror writer i'm not a lawyer writer i'm not a romance writer um i'm not really an inspirational or how-to or self-help author uh but my books do have you know, some inspiration in them and, and some life lessons in them. So, I, you know, I, I've, I've seen my books like, I've walked into stores sometimes, I've seen my books in a religious section, I've seen them in the fiction section, I've seen them in the how-to section, I've seen them in the sports section, you know. And so I, I don't know where to find it. So, um, you know, I guess it just means that uh, whatever it is that I'm trying to get across, a certain amount of people like. Well, you say it's important for you to get those points across. What is it? That's important for you to get across to them. What are those lessons? Well, you know, Adam, I mean, I, in all seriousness, I had a, you know, sort of a uh, life-changing experience uh, when I was about 37 years old. You know, I've been a sports writer thick and thin uh, for the first 15 years, 16 years of my career. Uh, I was writing a column for the Detroit Free Press. I was on ESPN uh, three days a weekend when I, we, I started ESPN2. I did the sports reporter show. I did a radio show. I said no to nothing when it came to sports. I mean, <laughs> sports was everything, and I wanted to be as ambitious and successful as I could in it. And then when I was 37, I happened to be flipping the remote control, and I saw an old professor of mine from college uh, talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I was taken aback because in all my ambition and chasing of all these sports dreams, I had forgotten about him, and I hadn't stayed in touch with him, and he and I had been extremely close in college. So I went out to see him. I thought it would be a one-time visit. and turned into a, all the Tuesdays that he had left in his life, and I ended up writing a book called Tuesdays with Maury uh, to pay his medical bills. And that was supposed to be a tiny little book, uh, but for some reason when it came out, it just grew and grew and grew and grew and still grows, and it turned my whole life around, Adam. I mean, and you knew me, and you've known me, you knew me before, and you knew me after. And, uh, you know, suddenly I couldn't go through an airport. People would used to say to me, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I'd say, Patriots, and just keep going, you know. And then all of a sudden I was going through airports, and people were saying, oh, my, my wife died of cancer, and the last thing we did was read your book, Tuesdays with Maury, Can I Talk to You? And you can't go Patriots, you know, and just keep going. You have to stop. And I've had to stop and talk to people like that every single day of my life, sometimes two, five, ten, or if I'm at a, an event, 50 or 60 times a night to hear stories about lost loved ones and how they're dealing with disease or major events in their life. So my whole emphasis of what's important in life changed after Tuesdays with Maury, and my books changed, and my writing changed, and what I wanted to get across in all the books that I've written subsequently have been kind of a result of the lessons that I learned from my old professor, and I'm still, even with this new book and even with all the previous ones, each one of those books can be directly tied back 
to something that I sat with Maury and talked about and, and still resonates with. Hmm. What have you learned during that time, Mitch, about the language of loss? Because in all these books, there is the language of loss that's so yeah. important that people have so identified with. So what have you learned about that that people have taken to so much? Well, uh, the best way I can explain it actually is in this book uh, because, as you know, as you know me personally, yes. uh, I've suffered a lot of loss in the last few years. I lost my mother, my father, and uh, our little girl that we were raising uh, from Haiti uh, all within about three and a half years. And that's a lot, uh, especially the multiple generations of it. And in this new book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, which follows the kind of idea of uh, the five people you meet in heaven, uh, where a person goes to heaven and meets five people from their life who they may have known or may not have known, but they explain to them something that they didn't understand about it. One of the characters explains to the, the woman who is going through her heavenly journey about loss. And he does it this way. He takes these pipe cleaners that play a part in the story, and he takes, there's five of them, and he takes one of them and he makes a tiny little heart, perfectly round and perfectly shaped. And he says, you see this heart? It's perfect and it's unlined. This is the heart that we're born with. Then he takes the other four pipe cleaners and he makes this really big heart that's lined and crisscrossed. And he says, you see this heart? This is the heart we die with. And the woman says, uh, but it's all broken. And he says, that's right. And she says, that's what ruins it. And he says, no, that's what makes it whole. And that is what I have learned about loss and how I have to choose to talk about loss is that, yeah, it hurts. It lines our heart. It crisscrosses and it dents our heart up and it breaks it. But those lines are how you come to appreciate your life and how you come to appreciate what you still have and the loved ones that you still do have. And if, if our hearts were all like when we are born, we'd never miss anything because, you know, if you don't lose anything, you don't appreciate anything. And so all those cracks allow the light to sort of come into your heart and understand what it means to have and what it means to lose, but what it means to still have while you're still here. And that's why I say about our little girl that we lost, we, we didn't lose a child, we were given a child. And I know you've had a lot of loss in your family, too, and in your, and your marriage in particular uh, with your wife and what she went through. And, you know, I'm sure she's had to adopt a similar kind of philosophy or else you just can't get through the day, you know. And uh, so that's really the best way I can explain it. And then I wrote it in, that, in this new book because I was feeling it while I was writing the book. So how much were your personal experiences dealing with the loss of your mom and your dad and your little girl reflected in this book right now? A good deal. I think everything that you go through in life finds your way even into a novel, you know, even if it's fictional. Uh, people might be able to see a character here or there. Um, there's a moment in the book, there's a sentence in the book where, where the this woman, Annie, who is kind of the focus of, of the book, she's the little girl from the first book who got saved by Eddie, who pushed her out of the way from a cart. He died, he went to heaven, but she lived. Now this is the story of her, and what happens to her in her life, and then what happens to her when she dies and goes to heaven, and one of the five people she meets is Eddie from the first book. Uh, and there's a line in there when she is talking about a child that she lost, um, who she gets to hold again, and just for a moment, and then it's gone. And the line is, uh, she felt utterly full and utterly vacant at the same time, which is what having and losing a child is like. And that line is written right from my own life and that's exactly how it feels when you lose a child you feel like you've had everything you could possibly want in life and you are missing absolutely everything when it's gone uh so you know your your personal life will always find your way into fiction somehow or another um just sometimes more than others Mitch, you're on a tour right now. I know you're in Philadelphia today, or you're going to be in Philadelphia today. You'll be in Toledo, Ohio, November 7th, uh, then Roslyn, New York on Thursday, November 8th. And you've already been to a number of cities. What has been the reaction of people that you've met along the way? What has been their biggest takeaway of your new book? Well, first of all, for 15 years, I've been getting their letters and emails about 
what happened to Eddie and how, what's the second stage of heaven? And you can't just stop that story there. <laughs> what happened to the little girl? So one nice thing is that I've answered those questions. You know, I don't get those anymore. Um, another thing is, you know, the book is so small. You know, I write these short books that sometimes the lines are long and people will come up and they say, oh, I've read half of it in line already. <laughs> like, well, can you save the second half? I don't want you to like put it back and say, I finished it. You got anything else? Um, but they're very glad to see these characters come back, uh, which is interesting because I've never written a sequel. You know, like I wasn't lucky enough to invent Harry Potter or Jack Reacher or anything like that, you know, where you can just keep going back to them. So this is the first time I've ever revisited characters and it it's like it's like readers are grateful uh like oh thank you you know i always love that i always you know i, I rushed out because i always wonder what happened to them so the reaction's been really nice and um you know the whole idea of the first person you, the, the the five people you meet in heaven was about my was about eddie and his whole issue was that he thought he was a nobody mm-hmm. and i tried to say there's no such thing as a nobody everybody affects somebody and this book, uh, Annie, the little girl who grows up kind of guilty of the accident that she caused this man to lose his life while she lived, she feels everything she does is a mistake. Uh, everything I touch goes sour. Everything I do is a mistake. And the lesson of this book, you know, is sort of like there's no such thing as everything being a mistake. All of our mistakes lead to something else. And if you have your eyes open, you see that they actually can sometimes lead to opportunities. I'm sure many times in your life... Mm-hmm. You can look back on something you thought, oh, this is terrible that this is happening, this is awful, or I really messed this up. And then two years after that, you go, wow, if I hadn't messed that up, I wouldn't be in this situation that I'm in now. So, you know, people are grateful for that lesson, and uh, if, if it's of any comfort to them, I'm happy. That's the story of life right there. I mean, I, you, everybody could look at all these instances in their life where things haven't worked out, and they lead you to certain other opportunities, relationships, situations that you would never imagine. And you hope that they're good ones, not bad ones, because that also happens sometimes. Right. But if the, if the next thing's a bad one, then that leads you to something else, you know. Everything trips us into uh, something else. We're sort of a, our lives are sort of a series, whether they're in sports or anything. I mean, athletes will always tell you that, too. Oh, I got traded. I thought it was over. And then, yeah, man, it turned out that's where I met my wife. And, you know, we had all this. we all just kind of bumbling along, things happening to us and and. and and then later, when we're finally at the end, we sort of understand. And that's kind of what this Five People You Meet in Heaven series is sort of about, that we have no clue when we're here about, you know, why this happened or why this... We, we lament a lot of things. We, we were angry about a lot of things. Why did I lose that person? Why did I miss lose that job? Why did I have to, you know, go to fight in the war or whatever? And to me, I always thought, well, if heaven is really what it's supposed to be, you know, where it's, a, it's this place of eternal bliss then the first thing that will happen is they say, okay, let's explain to you what you didn't get while you were down there on Earth. Let me show you why this worked and this worked and this worked. And that's, that's, sort of the, that's what happens to these characters when they, when they actually get to the afterlife. So how do you look back on your life now, Mitch, and all that you've accomplished? And, and I mean this when I say this. There's nobody in our business that I admire and respect more. There's nobody that I looked up to more in the business. And I look at everything that you've done with all these best-selling books, with the establishment of the nine charities in Detroit with the orphanage that you operate in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, with all the good and charitable and philanthropic work that you've done. How do you look back on your life now? Did you ever think that this is this would be what it is now? Well, no. I mean, that I can answer very quickly. I, I never thought my life to this point would, would look like this at all. I started out as a musician, so where were my aspirations you know i didn't i didn't write a word so even getting into writing was an accident for me getting into sports writing was a total accident for me i, I was applying for a sunday magazine writer's job I, I i was i liked sports but i wasn't fascinated by sports it just so happened that the the guy who was looking at the clips for the sunday magazine writer's job he rejected me but he took my envelope of clips he walked it across the newsroom and gave it to the sports editor and said, hey, you know, this guy's written some sports before. He's got a bunch of sports clips in there. I don't know. Maybe you're interested in them. And that guy, Fred Turner of the Fort Lauderdale yep. Sun-Sentinel, read my clips, called me up. I was in Finland at the time. He called me up, offered me a job, and, and, and gave me an entry into sports writing that I never would have had. Now, I look at that, Adam, and I say, I don't even know who that guy was who read my clips 
and brought them across the newsroom and gave them to Fred. Hmm. But what if he didn't? What if he just thrown them in the trash, like most people do? I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So here's a person who changed my life totally, hmm. and I don't even know his name. Uh, I, don't even, I couldn't thank him if I wanted to. So that's all of my life has been like that. That's why these five people you mean to have, the next person you mean to have, that's what they all find out is like somebody changed your life in a way that you didn't even know, and uh, you may not even have a chance to thank them, and they're responsible for it. So to answer your original question, though, no, I could never have seen all this stuff happen to me. I'm, I'm, I'm the definition of that John Lennon quote, life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans, you know. <laughs> While I was busy trying to be this, that, and the other thing, life had something else in store for me. And now, at at this age, you know, I'm not done, I'm not finished, uh, you know, but I'm older and wiser. And um, it's funny, the longer I have been in sports and that the world of, you know, I've done some movies and things like that, this high-profile world of fame, the more I appreciate um, the absolute opposite of it, the kids that I take care of in Haiti every month, who have nothing, who are left to die out in fields and, uh, you know, as infants and who wandered around the country for several years after the parents were killed in earthquakes, just wandering around being picked up by random strangers. My heart goes totally to that and and totally away from fame and celebrity and, and stuff that I've been covering and writing about and athletic fame and all that. My, my interests every year get less and less in that and more, more and more in and helping the people you'd never even hear about. And that's been interesting to me. I didn't think that my life would turn out that way. And so you're touching their lives, and and not to personalize this, but I mean this when I say this, Mitch, you touch and change my life because when I went to Michigan in 1985 as a freshman, I had never read anybody the way that you wrote. Your work inspired me. It motivated me. It made me want to become... A sports writer, and, I, and I've, I told you I wanted to be Mitch Album when I was in college. I never. And you remember what I told you all the time? <laughs> Shoot higher. <laughs> well, well, let me. Um, but I'm just being honest when I say this: that you helped set me on the path that led me to where I am today. And I would not be there without having been inspired by watching you work and do everything that you did. And I could not believe the work that you did with everything in Detroit. It just, it blew me away. Um, and you talk about these experiences changing you and these people changing you. How have all your experiences with all these books, with all these charities changed the way that you view sports today? Well, that's a good question. And uh, I have to be honest and say, I just can't get that worked up over some of the stuff anymore uh, that goes on. You know, when I see as we're speaking today, there was a fight in um, uh, a basketball game between a couple of guys trying to, you know, out-macho each other with the Lakers and the Houston Rockets. And I just shrug and go, honestly, you know, really, that's that's a big issue. You know, who's the toughest guy out in the court? And I, I find myself saying that more and more, you know, if uh, uh, the Jimmy Butler situation where, you know, how can I play with a team that isn't going to win a championship this year? I, really? This is, you're getting paid millions and millions of dollars. You could do so much good with that. And, and this, is what you're, this is what you're complaining about in life. So it, it's a hard world to work in if you're also working in the third world, uh, you know, with kids who aren't able to eat in situations. like It is hard. But I, I try not to become like, holier than now about anything you know i'm the one who chose to work in the other world they're not forcing me to be in sports Mm -hmm. so i just don't get that crazed about it and i tend to write stories or or talk about stories that are smaller or that are you know off to the side and you've known me a long time i've always kind of gravitated to those kind of stories anyhow you know my my the most fun i ever had writing sports is when i I went i did a rod (laughs) and covered dog sled racing for two weeks in alaska freezing my ass off so um, you know, I, I, I guess I've always sort of gravitated to that stuff. Anyhow, but it's just the trivial stuff and the Twitter wars and the things like that that go on between athletes really doesn't hold much interest. I'm, I, become, I have to fight myself to become, from becoming angry at it. But the games themselves yeah. are still interesting. 
You know, they still are. They're, 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 they're still magnificent performances. The level of talent has gone up so much since I've been in sports writing. You know, the level of college talent, the level of 23- and 24-year-olds in, in, in major leagues. Uh, you know, uh, we were just talking the, the other day or on the Sports Reporters podcast about how young Patrick Mahomes is, you know, and, and so how, how do these guys get so good so young? Yeah, so it's all improved. Everybody's faster and stronger. And I enjoy that. I mean, I, and there's no reason that you can't do both things. There's no reason that you can't write books that are about, you know, what's really meaningful in life and enjoy a fourth quarter, you know, drive to win a game. Why? Who, who, who on earth said well, you have to pick one or the other and you can't enjoy it? It's all part of the, the, the tapestry of life. I enjoy it. Mitch, you're still hosting your daily talk show on WJR there in Detroit. You're still writing these books. You're still writing sports columns, doing podcasts. You're doing everything. What more do you want to keep doing? How much longer do you want to keep doing this? What's left for you to do still? Well, I don't. you're giving me too much credit, Adam, as you always do, uh, because I don't do any of these things full-time. And, you know, even radio, I'm off like three months a year, which is unheard of in radio. And I don't write a full-time sports column. And my books come out every, every three years. So I'm trying to balance <laughs> my life with uh, my work with, with doing things for other people and about half of my life now is charity and that's fine it it ought to be i've had enough opportunities i've been blessed with enough half of my life should go to charity works now and i'm happy to do it um and what i still have left to do uh well there's much to do with these children in, in haiti i've got 47 kids i want every one of them to be college educated my first two are up here now uh, in, in Michigan as I speak. They're freshmen at a school called Madonna University. They got scholarships. One of them is pre-med. Wow. And uh, my hope is that the other 45 all get here and, and get a college education and then go back to their country uh, and, and change the pattern that brought them to me. You know, I always say to them, I want you guys to close this place. You know, I don't want there to need to be an orphanage, you know, for kids who were abandoned or let go or whatever. I want you to get married and have children and raise them with good jobs, and, and uh, then we can close this place up. So I have to live a long time because i got three-year-olds now, <laughs> and I keep projecting ahead. I keep saying to Janine, my wife, you know, because we take in new kids. And I said, well, we just took in a three-year-old. That means i got to live at least, uh, at least 19 more years to get them through college, you know. So I keep pushing the out- exterior of my envelope um, not if God's willing to do that. That's what I really have to look forward to. You know, there's plenty of challenges in work, but that's that's the thing I'd love to see the most. Well, you've always taken care of yourself. You always worked out, exercised, eaten right. So I expect you to live a very, very long time, Mitch, and for that to happen. Well, I mean, I would meet you down in the uh, hotel rooms in the, in, in the hotels <laughs> in the fitness rooms, and uh, I would come in sometimes. Your listeners might. Get a kick out of it. I'd come in, uh, you know, you open the glass door with your key, and you'd hear like the chump, 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 and I'd come in, and more often than not, Adam Schefter would be the guy in that machine, and you'd be soaked with sweat. And I said, Adam, you, you know, I know you're younger than me, but how come you have to keep getting up earlier than me and beating me to these machines? Uh, and so you were working hard then, and I'm sure yeah. no different right now. Any more books left for you, Mitch? Yeah, well, there are plenty of books left, um, but I am working on one even now um, that is actually going to be out next year, which is really fast for me. But uh, it, it is a book about our little girl, Chica. Mm. It's a nonfiction book called The Summer of Chica, and it's about what life is like when you become a father in your 50s uh, and and you know, this little girl was funny and brash and bossy, and she would tell all the other kids where to eat and where to go, who could get in line for the bathroom first, and all. even when she was five. She always had her hands on her hips, even when she was five. And then when she came up here and they diagnosed her with this brain tumor, um, she still, her personality was still the same, and she never really understood why she was sick. She just knew that suddenly she had kind of a mother and father with her, and we suddenly had a daughter, and uh, she was an absolute joy, even though she was dying uh, for the better part of those two years. And what you can learn from a child at this age in life and, uh, and, and your priorities and how it can just sort of 
put everything in perspective was amazing. And, um, you know, I think it's universal. She didn't look like us. She didn't have the same skin color as us. She didn't speak the original language like us. She didn't come from our, you know, uh, our DNA. But we could not have been more of a family, and we could not have loved the daughter any more uh, than we did her. And I think that tells you about, you know, what it takes to make a family, that it's, it's not just DNA or who came first. And gosh, Adam, you know this as, as well as anybody uh, with your own situation, which you wrote an absolutely beautiful book, The Man I Never Met. I was so happy to read that in, uh, in its galley form. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are lots of ways to make a family. And uh, I want to say that while all of her memories are still really fresh in my mind. So I'm, I'm working on that now. How, and, how therapeutic is it for you to write that book now, Mitch? Oh, man, it's, you know, I almost can't wait to just come down every morning and work on it because uh, I get to rehash these conversations that I had with her, which were often very funny, you know. She said to me once, uh, we were, I used to have to carry her around towards the end because she couldn't walk anymore. You know, her brain, you know, the, the signals were, were, were botched. So I would carry her from the bed to the kitchen table or the table to the bathroom, wherever we had to go. I was her transportation. And uh, we were sitting at the table coloring once, and all of a sudden I look at my watch and realize I'm late for the radio show. I said, oh, Chica, i got to go. She says, no, no, stay, stay, color. I said, I can't, I have to go. She says, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do, Chica, this is, this is my job. And she looks at me and she says, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. <laughs> Which, you know, of course, this classic funny and also dead true. Yeah. You know, that, yes, my job was carrying her. Of course it was. It's all of our jobs to carry our children, you know, and especially when they, they can't do things on their own. And I, I got to carry her. It was the best job I ever had, you know, carry her from place to place. And the, the last time I held her, was when I carried her uh, from our home after she passed away. And, uh, you know, and I had to take her outside. And, and uh, that, was, uh, that was really special. And so I wanted to get that down. So, yeah, it's a, cathartic, it's a cathartic experience to write that book. And when will that book be out, Mitch? Next fall. Next fall. We look forward to reading that one as well. Thanks. And before I let you go, uh, we have a prediction around the Lions, your Detroit Lions. Well... You know, they've been surprising us. It, it, you know me. I, I don't get revved up early in seasons on anything because I've just seen too much. And it was <laughs> almost amusing to me that when the Lions lost to the Jets on Monday Night Football, which now really seems like a bad loss <laughs> given the Jets, uh, there were people here in Detroit who were burying Matt Patricia already, and they're saying he's lost the locker Yeah, locker room mutiny. Yeah, there's a mutiny. They don't want to play for this guy. They don't want to. And I'm like, one game? You know, and now, I mean, they actually look together. You know, they have a running game. Uh, on Johnson, I knew, was going to be a good player. I didn't know he'd, he'd be able to turn it on like this. They actually block for him by giving a running game to Matthew Stafford. He's got all kinds of time that he didn't have before. He's got this kid in Kenny Galladay who's a really good young receiver who's, like, starting to become his next Calvin Johnson. Plus, he's got the, the smaller guys who he continues to throw to, and, uh, and their defense you know, bends but doesn't break. And, you know, they're at 500, and they're, they're uh, 500 and rising, you know. Uh, and so they're staying apace with the, with the very tough division that they're in. And uh, I think they'll be competitive. So p- clearly the end has not come for Matt Patricia before, <laughs> before the beginning even started. <laughs> and, um, you know, you have to play these things out. It's just. You have learned this, I'm sure, better than anybody. Uh, because football is played every Sunday and there are six days in between, it's too much time. <laughs> you know, it's like just too much time. People get hysterical. They get hysterical. They get hysterical. It's too much time. We have too much free time. They should shorten a week, you know, or they should play every three days or something because there's too much analysis that goes into every game about whose season is over and what's going to be, and the Patriots were being buried and they're not the way they used to be, and and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, wow. Uh, Jaguars Tampa are going Bay. to the Super Bowl. The Eagles yeah, are repeating. Yeah, Tampa Bay is going to the Super Bowl, <laughs> and Jameis Winston's never going to suit up for a game again. And, you know, look at all the early, early storylines that are all history already. And the ones that we're talking about now may be history. You know, uh, uh, maybe, maybe New Orleans is what they are, or, or maybe 
maybe uh, the next couple of games, which are really tough, and we'll be talking about them as you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, three or four losses. So I wait, I wait till the end, and uh, there's only one month that really matters, and that's January, and one week that really matters, and that's February. And until then, we'll see. The Lions, if they make the playoffs, uh, I think it'll be in their division. That'll be a major accomplishment. But um, I do think Matt Patricia, here, I'll go way out on a limb. Yeah, go ahead, Mitch. I think Matt Patricia will still be the coach at the end of the year. <laughs> in, in today's day and age, that is saying something. How about that? Mitch Alms predicting that Matt Patricia will survive the season. <laughs> you know, that'll be tweeted about, I'm sure, somewhere. <laughs> That's very good. Well, the one thing that hasn't changed is the quality of your work. It has been excellence time and time again. And before I sat down to call here, I was thinking, I'm like, I've known Mitch since about 1987 or so, 86, 87. So our relationship spans over 30 years. Uh, you've been a friend. You've been an example. You've been a mentor. I thank you for all of that and more. And I congratulate you on the release of your new book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven. Adam, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I have always taken great pride in watching you uh, advance in your career. And you're a perfect example of someone who... Yeah, I helped you at one point when you were very young and you were a kid in Michigan. And, you know, you helped me uh, research the book Bo uh, about Bo Schembechler. But all I did was sort of help you up to a level that you were going to get to one way or another uh, and then watch you climb <laughs> much higher than me uh, and, and, and see you advance. And no one has been happier or, or prouder of watching uh, someone who, who deserves to be where he is than I am of you over the years. Right. And, you know, you, you continue to do great work. And you did it back then. I mean, for, for, for those kids who are out listening to your podcast, you learned something that I learned, too, which was your first job, don't ask how much it's going to pay. Ask what's it going to teach you. And, you know, my first job, I volunteered for a newspaper and worked for six months without getting paid. Uh, and I learned everything. Uh, you... I don't remember if I paid you. I think I paid you something, but whatever it was wasn't much, or maybe it was nothing. But I know you learned a lot about about uh, you know how to research and how to report, and you are still doing that today. So you know, I'm sure at some point you're helping some young person get started uh, on their career, and so that's how the cycle continues. And and it's funny because again, uh, I was your one of your research assistants. Uh, for the bow book, and then you call me for Fab Five, and you said you were into the project. You said there's only one thing I need from you. Uh, I have not been able to get a hold of Jimmy Walker. If you can get a right. hold of Jimmy Walker, uh, please let me know. And 24 hours later, I got you a number to get a hold of Jimmy Walker, which uh, turned out to be like the highlight of that book. When uh, I went, and that's Jalen Rose's yeah, dad, exactly. who Jalen Rose had never met, and uh, you found him or found his number. I called him and met him in Atlanta, I want to say, or That's somewhere right. in Georgia, in some park. Uh, you know, like I drove to some park where families were having hot dog, you know, things and barbecues and stuff. And we met in this park. He was wearing a white jumpsuit, I remember, or a white tracksuit. And uh, no one had found him. No one had talked to him. And I ended up, you know, interviewing him about Jalen and then went back and told Jalen about him and, yeah. and gave Jalen the number. And I don't think I don't know if Jalen he didn't call him right away. I think eventually they spoke, and um, you were instrumental in that. You know, so uh, well, it's like it's like I tell everybody, Mitch. I I helped you with Bo. I helped you with uh, the Fab Five, and my efforts were so instrumental to your success that the first time you didn't use me was for Tuesdays with Maury. You see how that uh, impacted you and slowed you down. (laughs) Well, uh, you lifted me up to that level, and then I was doing it on my own. How's that? Well, I, I would not be where I am today without you, and I sincerely mean that, and I thank you for that, and I love you for that. Appreciate it, Adam. Great to talk to you. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment with your Ask Adam questions, but now is the perfect time to tell you about Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with awesome hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. The cool thing is they only work with hotels they think you'll love and has short profiles of each hotel with all the info you need to know and pictures of what the rooms really look like. And even though the name's Hotel Tonight, you can actually book in advance so you can use it whether you like to plan or play things by ear. It's the one-stop shop for booking vacations or staycations, weekend getaways, road trips, business trips, and more. So start getting really great deals at great hotels and go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. 
Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. We should ask Adam. Welcome back to another edition of Your Calls, Your Voicemails for Ask Adam. We've got the NFL trade deadline a week away, and my fine, outstanding producer, Josh Macri, has collected some of your voicemails, and we're going to play them today and try to answer some of your questions. Josh, you there? Yeah, Adam, it's been too long, first of all, since we've uh, heard from our fine loyal listeners, so figured we'd bring back the Ask Adam segment yeah. today, and we may as well call you Nostradamus, because you just brought up the fact that the trade deadline's a week away, and not surprisingly, that's what a lot of our callers wanted to talk about, like this one. Hey Adam, this is Chris Manera from the small town of Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Wow. Uh, my question for you is, is it more likely that the Eagles make a deal for Patrick Peterson, or for a running back like, say, Jordan Howard, uh, or maybe Le'Veon Bell? Go Birds. Well, Chris in Pagosa Springs, or you left out LaShawn McCoy, a guy that the Eagles once called on one time. Now, again, some interesting names there. The one thing about Philadelphia is, to me, they are one of the most aggressive teams in the league. And it's almost like you give your kid $20 to go to the mall. He's got $20 to go spend. What is he going to go or she going to go and buy with that money? I almost feel like the Eagles have enough chips built up with 11 draft picks in the upcoming draft with the capital that they have to go make one deal. So do they try to go pry loose Patrick Peterson, who the Cardinals have insisted that they're not trading? I don't see Jordan Howard getting dealt from Chicago. I don't know where that talking conversation is coming from. LaShawn McCoy is a name that's floated around out there. Uh, The Eagles had made a call on Amari Cooper. So, again, I I just think when the Eagles are struggling the way they are, and they're still in the thick of things in the NFCs, they're going to be busy, and they're going to do their best to pull off a deadline deal like they did last year, trading a fourth-round pick to Miami to JHI. I don't have the exact answer for you, Chris, other than I expect Philadelphia to be active. Adam, here's another question pertaining to another contender and what they might do at the deadline. Yes, my name is Adrian, and I was wondering if the Chargers would make any moves, even if it's a small trade, for something to improve their chances for a Super Bowl. Thank you. Well, Adrian, what I would say this is that we go back and look, I, I don't recall a history of the Los Angeles Chargers being ultra-aggressive at the trade deadline. That's not to say that they wouldn't do something if it benefited the team. But when we go back and look at the five deals that were made at the deadline last year and the three that have already been made this year, none of them have involved the Chargers. Typically, that's not been their pattern. And while we're talking about the Eagles being aggressive, uh, I don't see that. Now, if an opportunity presented itself, yeah. But I don't see, I'm not aware of anything, shall we say, at this point in time involving the Chargers. Doesn't mean it can't happen, but I'm not aware of anything. All right, let's move away from the trade deadline for these last two questions. First, one about the Jets. It's Tiffany calling from Brooklyn. I am a pathetically hopeful and pathetically loyal <laughs> Jets fan. Many are. And outside of our young quarterback being the age that he is, needing to develop his instinct, needing to develop his confidence. What do you think is the biggest thing hindering the Jets' forward progress at this point? Please, God. (laughs) Well, Tiffany and Brooklyn, have a little patience. I believe the Jets' arrow is pointing up. I believe they've begun to accumulate a lot of good young talent, and I think it's going to click at some point in time here, sooner rather than later. I know it's not where you want right now, and the Jets are a maddening team, and living in New York with so many frustrated Jet fans who lack hope, uh, I just would say that there are better days ahead. I think the Jets also will be looking at the trade deadline to see if they could add any talent. Uh, They've got cap space galore coming up to add more free agents. They've got to keep peace in place at the quarterback position. A lot of people believe Sam Darnold is going to be the guy. And and, and he reminds me a little bit of Carson Wentz in his rookie year because a lot of people looked at Wentz during his rookie year and said, well, is this guy going to be the answer? And there were some Sundays he looked really good and other Sundays he said, "I, I don't know. And it's not entirely dissimilar with Sam Darnold. And then in his second year, Carson Wentz just took off. And I think it's going to be similar with Sam Darnold. They've got to get better up front on the offensive line. That may be the biggest thing this team needs to do. They've got to protect their franchise better than they have and ensure that they go out and get some of these offensive linemen this upcoming offseason so that they can protect Sam. And if they do that, I think he can be like Carson Wentz in his second year. Carson Wentz was vying for the NFL MVP award before he tore up his knee last December in L.A. And I, but I really believe, Tiffany, in Brooklyn that the Jets are on the right track. Let's stay in New York for the final Ask Adam question of the week. Hey, Adam. My name is Mike. Um, just finished watching the Monday Night Football game, and we saw the Giants 
go for two when they were down by eight, mm-hmm. and people were talking about how it's an analytical move. Is football starting to become more of an analytical type of a game all of a sudden? Are coaches looking into numbers more now, like baseball has become? Thanks. Well, Mike, I think that's been a trend in the league for a long time. I don't think it's anything new. I think that many front offices, the Browns turned over their front office to analytics before they fired some people. And many teams, almost all the teams, every team has analytics people in place. And we know the effect it's had in baseball. And I think it's had a similar effect in football. I don't think it's as relevant. There are still old school people, old school coaches, front office members who like to do things their way that don't rely on analytics. I've had people say to me, longtime general managers, hey, there are some things that numbers just can't see and judge, engage. And that's why you see old-time scouts, personnel directors, GMs show up at college games to watch the way a guy interacts with his teammates, to see the way he behaves in the huddle, to see how he handles a big play or a big loss or whatever it may be. So analytics have their place in the NFL. They've played a prominent role for a while. I don't think it's anything new. I haven't heard it associated too often with a play call like you're talking about there, um, but they definitely have a spot in the NFL. Thank you, everyone, who submitted an Ask Adam question this week. And a reminder, if you'd like to do so moving forward, just call 860-506-5779. Leave your name and a question, and if it's good enough, you'll make the podcast. So thank you to the listener for all those questions this week. And special thanks to my friend, my mentor, the New York Times bestselling author, Mitch Album for joining us on this podcast, as well as the Steelers running back, James Conner, who has stepped in admirably for Le'Veon Bell, and our ESPN NFL researcher, Evan Kaplan, for providing a preview of Week 8 in the NFL. Please join us again next week for another edition of the Adam Schefter Podcast. Thanks for listening today, everybody.